Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, there is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. On September 7, 1978, a supposed accident happened. Georgi Markov, a Bulgarian defector, was headed to work at the BBC. Whilst waiting for a bus, he felt something sharp sting his leg. Surprised, he turned to see what had stung him. He saw someone picking up an umbrella from the floor and running away before they hailed a cab. The incident seemed like an accident, but in just three days' time, Georgi would be dead. This time on Macabre London, we'll be uncovering the mystery of the umbrella murder. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit, and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around the streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of a gruesome nature. 
Today we'll be exploring one of these stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drees and this is Macabre London. Between 1947 and 1991, the Eastern Bloc was at war with the Western Bloc. The Eastern Bloc consisted of the Soviet Union and its sister states, and the Western Bloc was made up of the UK, the USA, and many other Western-aligned countries. The rising tensions between the two factions and an oppressive communist regime in the Eastern Bloc meant that many people living there decided to leave the countries that were ruled by communism. For some people, the communist regime was too much and didn't work in the way they had been promised, meaning many people left the country in the hope of being able to return at some point in the future when tensions had calmed down. Georgi Markov was a playwright and broadcaster in Bulgaria. He was hugely popular with the Bulgarian people. He was highly revered in the country and his works were well received, even by those in government. The president, Todor Zhivkov, was so taken by Georgi and his works that he invited him to be part of his inner circle, a friend group that would spend weekends hunting at Zhivkov's retreat in the countryside. Georgi, his friends and the government were thriving under the communist regime. But this didn't sit well with Georgi. He noticed that the main principles of communism, where everyone was meant to be treated as equals, simply wasn't the case. There was still a rich-poor divide, and growing more and more disillusioned with Zhivkov, Georgie began writing pointed articles and plays, calling him an incompetent dictator and removed himself from the inner circle and also the country. After the incident on Waterloo Bridge, Georgie admitted himself to St James's Hospital in Balham at 9pm on September the 8th. Georgie showed his very minor injury to his wife, who reported it to be rather underwhelming and like a pin scratch from a hypodermic needle but thought they should go and get it looked at just in case. When explaining to doctors what had happened and recounting his story, the consultants were confused as to why a simple sting on the leg would have landed him in hospital. Markov insisted that it was something to do with the KGB, who were at that time the main security agency for the now disassembled USSR. Bulgaria had the strongest alliance with the USSR, and Georgie was convinced that the incident was too strange to not be related to his defection from the country. In the lead-up to the event on the 7th of September, Georgie had been told by friends still living in Bulgaria that he was in the KGB's list of wanted people, and that he'd been receiving threatening phone calls ever since he'd left. Thinking those threats were empty, and just a scare tactic used to dissuade him from writing anti-communist propaganda, Markov chose to ignore them, to his own detriment. Doctors felt that George's story was a little overreactive, and felt that it all seemed a bit like a story from a spy film. But just to be on the safe side, they still tried to treat Markov. With George's symptoms ranging from mild nausea and headaches, to severe shooting pains all over his body, doctors didn't know what they were treating him for. At one point, the doctors wondered if it may well be a better option to give Markov a psychological test to see if his illness was less related to the puncture hole in his leg and more to do with mental illness, but decided against the option. However, the puncture wound on Georgie's right thigh was sore to the touch 
and doctors started to believe that maybe this was the area that he'd had something injected into him. When police discovered that Markov thought he may have actually been poisoned by the KGB, they began carrying out some research into Georgie's past and his defection from Bulgaria. In 1969, Bulgarian authorities tried to ban one of Markov's novels, and in return, Georgie decided that censorship of his work was a step too far and packed his bags and headed for London, with a plan to never return amidst fears of what the government may do to him. Little did he realise that they would be so intent on killing him that they would keep tabs on him after his move to the UK. After two days of being in hospital, Markov's condition deteriorated rapidly. Georgie died on the morning of September the 11th from what the doctors reported as a cardiac arrest. Officers from Scotland Yard were assigned to Markov's case from the anti-terrorist branch and immediately began to appeal for witnesses that had been on the bridge at the time of Georgie's alleged stabbing. However, they were unable to come up with anyone that had noticed anything untoward. Perhaps this was exactly the result the assassin was looking for. If this was a poisoning, then ultimately Georgie had been murdered in broad daylight and nobody saw a thing. Georgie's murder was not gruesome, violent or hardly even noticeable, even to its victim. After the post-mortem on Georgie had been carried out, police issued a statement that they were investigating the case and that Georgie's death was not from natural causes, but suspicious circumstances. With doctors having treated Markov for a range of ailments, they could not close in on any one cause for his death. His symptoms did suggest that he had been bitten by a snake, but the chances of that happening on Waterloo Bridge would be nigh on impossible. When testing Georgie's blood, no trace of poison was found, but most of his major organs were changed in some way, either through hemorrhage or swelling. The pathologist treated Georgie's remains very delicately, and with the puncture wound on his thigh, he cut around the area and gave the tissue over to the police, who sent it for testing at the UK's main biological weapons testing site, Horton Down, to see if they could shed any light on what may be inside Georgie's skin. During the Cold War, Horton Down was responsible for looking into any biochemically suspicious event, and if anyone could track down something suspicious, it would be their team of well-trained scientists. Markov's tissue was inspected by the experts. They took thin slices of Georgie's tissue sample from the puncture site in the hopes they may discover a layer of trapped poison. As they sliced, one technician found their scalpel hitting a piece of metal inside the sample. A tiny ball, much like the tip of a pin, popped out of Georgie's skin, and at first the technician assumed it was the tip of a needle. After looking closer, the metal object appeared to be a tiny ball that was even smaller than the tip of a ballpoint pen. With Horton Down scientists reporting their findings to Scotland Yard, the small ball was sent off for testing at the ballistics lab with maybe a thought that it was a particle from a bullet. Once the item was sent to the ballistics and forensics lab, the ball was so tiny that even the scientists trying to study it had trouble keeping hold of it, as it kept rolling out onto the laboratory floor and was difficult to keep under a microscope. When eventually retrieved several times from the laboratory floor and placed in a high-sided Petri dish, the ball showed two tiny holes inside it, which suggested a reservoir where some poison could have been stored. When the ball was tested at Porton Down, it showed no traces of poison, so whatever was stored inside the reservoir in the ball was most likely sealed in with some kind of wax or some other substance which would be metabolised or melt when in contact with the warmth of its human host. 
allowing the poison to seep into the body. The ball was also made from a metal that wouldn't cause a reaction in the skin, much like those used for metal implants such as screws or pins for fixing bones, or even piercing jewellery. So whomever implanted the poison pack pellet wanted to make sure it stayed in the skin long enough to do its job. As news in the Western Bloc was awash with Markov's murder in the UK, in the Eastern Bloc, but perhaps more pointedly Bulgaria, the news of one of their greatest writers from recent times having died suddenly and under mysterious circumstances wasn't something deemed newsworthy, and no mention of Georgie's demise was broadcast. Markov's death was even censored from his own family members, with them saying that the only reason they found out about it was through friends who had connections to the UK and UK news sources. After Georgie's defection in 1969, Bulgaria did its best to erase all memory of him by destroying literature he'd written, stopping his plays from being performed in the theatre, and his name was removed from the credits of his films. It was as if Markov had already died in the eyes of President Zhivkov as soon as he'd left for London. However, Georgie's erasure from the public's memory wasn't enough for Zhivkov, and seemingly he still wanted him dead, perhaps as he felt personally wounded by Markov's betrayal due to the pair's abandoned friendship. Once Georgie had settled in London, he began writing plays for Radio Free Europe, who broadcasted directly into the Eastern Bloc. Markov made jabs directly at Zhivkov and generally mocked his approach to politics. Even though the government tried to block the signal for the broadcasts, most of Bulgaria could still receive the signal and listen to what Markov had to say. Many people that listened empathised with how the regime was being ruled and how disillusioned they were becoming with their leader. And for Zhivkov, who was growing increasingly insecure, he had to silence any bad words said against him. Two weeks before Georgie's attack, another Bulgarian defector and writer, Vladimir Kostov, was leaving the Paris metro on an escalator when he felt a thump on his back. Shortly afterwards, Kostov began to feel ill and went to see the doctor. Symptoms were very similar to Markov's, but unlike Georgie, he recovered from the incident. Kostov was friends with Georgie when they both lived in Bulgaria, and the two of them ran in similar circles, and both of them left Bulgaria around the same time due to their shared disdain for the communist rule. When Kostov heard the news about Georgie, he contacted Scotland Yard, and when telling them his experiences in Paris, they suggested they take a sample from where Kostov's skin had also been pierced. On September the 26th, a small pellet was removed from Kostov's back. The operation wasn't without risk, and Vladimir definitely put himself in danger, with the hope that he may be able to shed some light on Georgie's death. If the doctors performing Vladimir's biopsy had disturbed the pellet, then it could potentially release more poison, and as Kostov's reaction had been relatively minor, then this did suggest that perhaps the pellet hadn't released its intended dosage. However, the operation went without a hitch, and soon Kostov's skin was on the way to Scotland Yard. After the skin sample was tested, as expected, a small silver pellet was removed, which was identical to Markov's. If the attempted assassination had been carried out the same way, then the question begs, why did Kostov recover and Markov didn't? The two points on the body where the men were stabbed were very different, with Markov being stabbed in his leg and Kostov being stabbed in his back. As Kostov was wearing a thick woolen coat and jumper, the pellet wouldn't have been implanted with such force as it was through Georgie's thin suit trousers. 
meaning it only dispersed poison away from Kostov's bloodstream. When looking at Kostov and Markov's pellets, scientists calculated that it could hold just two-tenths of a milligram of poison, but what poison that was exactly would be hard to determine as there was no residue on either pellet. It was now down to the forensics team and the poison experts at Horton Down to look at Markov's post-mortem to determine the effects the poison had caused and trace it back to the potential substance. On the list of potential murderous chemicals, their subsequent symptoms had to match those that Markov and Kostov had suffered from. And with fairly generalised symptoms, it would be hard to track down just one substance. The list of potential substances read like a spice spice rack. Plutonium, ricin, abrin, snake venom and concentrated botulinum. However, some of these poisons wouldn't have been tested enough to provide a consistent certain death that the assassin was looking for. Abrin and ricin, however, were very well tested when it came to poisons, and they would have been known to cause the death that was required. When assessing Markov and Kostov's symptoms, the most logical match for the poison was ricin, as abrin was not an easy substance to obtain. To be sure of the substance used, scientists would need to conduct a recreation of the poisoning. If the ricin, when tested, conformed to the same pattern of symptoms that Georgie's body presented when autopsied, then this would be the first two instances ever of ricin injections having been used to assassinate someone. To test the injectable ricin, scientists had to first create a concentrated dose of the poison. Ricin is a plant-based derivative. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Its humble originator, the castor bean, is relatively harmless when treated in the regular way as to extract castor oil. Castor oil can be eaten or used in beauty products. However, when the castor bean is concentrated to form ricin, it can be one of the deadliest substances known to man. Unfortunately for a pig, which was the same weight and size as Markov, the dose of ricin that was suspected to have been given to Markov and Kostov was also given to the pig, and unsurprisingly it displayed identical symptoms to that of Markov's before it passed away. The organs of the pig when autopsied also showed the same hemorrhaging as Markov's. 
So with the murder substance now pinned, Scotland Yard had to do the same level of detective work to track down the perpetrators that wanted Kostov and Markov dead by looking at who could possibly create such a perfect murder. Bulgarian Secret Service was a fairly small and under-resourced organisation. The possibility of them being able to obtain the concentrated ricin needed to kill both Markov and Kostov would have been way beyond their capabilities. Another more powerful group who had good ties with Bulgaria must have supplied the poison. The KGB were the obvious allies in the operation, and the only suspected group to have colluded in the murder. When uncovering the ties between the two countries, Scotland Yard discovered that the Soviet Union had published literature on studies into ricin and its deadly uses, which was freely available to anyone who cared to look for it, perhaps to put off potential defectors. There was also some secret ricin research, which had been turned over to the police by an unknown source, and to which they were informed that the KGB had no access to. So with the poison perfected and the victims targeted, the assassin would need a weapon, and a simple umbrella made for the perfect disguise. The idea of using a standard everyday object wouldn't draw attention to the assassin, and nor would the sight of it raise any concern with its victims, particularly in London. But how do you make an umbrella into an item capable of murdering someone without beating them to death with it? The long and straight design of a standard umbrella from the 1970s made it an ideal shape to fire an object from its tip. The button to release the umbrella would also make an inconspicuous trigger, and to everyone on the streets it was just another man in a suit with an umbrella. Nothing untoward there. When Kostov was attacked, he didn't recall seeing an umbrella but instead suggested the weapon that was used on him may have been more like a pen. Now with all of the theory behind the attacks laid out, it was time to draw all of the circumstantial evidence together. Tracking down actual proof of the attacks would be impossible, all the while the communist regime was in power. The case petered out and came to a standstill, as any further probing by the UK police could cause a flare-up in political tensions, which may cause more people to lose their lives. Opting for one dead person over many, the police backed away with the case going cold and it was left untouched for 10 years. The Eastern Bloc disbanded in 1990 and with civil unrest, riots and general communist abolition, Scotland Yard was one step closer to accessing the orders Zhivkov had written to rid the world of Markov and Kostov. With the regime disbanded and all remnants of communism being removed from Bulgaria, Zhivkov was placed under house arrest for charges of corruption. The path was being laid for access to information that may just uncover the assassin behind the attacks. The former head of the KGB stepped forward to say he had been present at the meeting where Markov was added to the hit list of people that the Bulgarian government wanted dead, and with which they needed assistance in assassinating. The Bulgarian government never admitted responsibility for the murders, even though the evidence was very obviously orders delivered from Zhivkov. When questioned at the press conference, after his release from house arrest, Zhivkov was asked, was Georgie killed by a Bulgarian umbrella? Zhivkov replied, you gave the answer with your question. Not long after Zhivkov was released, he contracted pneumonia and passed away, meaning the real truth died with him also. Now under a new government, which wanted to do right by those that had suffered at the hands of Zhivkov and his dictatorship, Bulgaria opened an investigation of their own into what had happened to Markov and Kostov. The police assigned to the case began investigating, and before long discovered records where Markov was 
referred to by his code names the Bulgarians had afforded him, Skipnik, which translates to trap. The documents revealed information right back to when Markov first started writing scripts, which began scrutinising the regime back in 1974, ranging through to the broadcast of Radio Free Europe, detailing every wrong move and ill word that was said against the regime. There were no assassination plans written in the documents, but the wording requesting Markov be neutralised was present. The logical consecutive documents, with the actual plans, were conspicuously missing, presumed destroyed. To dispose of the documents was an offence, and it didn't take long before Vladimir Todorov, the former head of state security while Zhivkov was in power, to pick up on his impending conviction for perverting the course of justice. When hearing that police were planning to arrest him for defrosting state secrets, he went to Moscow to try to outrun them. Realising he would receive a better sentence if he returned to Bulgaria rather than being caught in Moscow, suggesting that he was loyal to Russia, Todorov returned to face the music. As any proof of Russia's collusion in the murder was ultimately destroyed, along with the documents, the KGB was now protected from any repercussions, as Todorov would take the brunt of the punishment. Todorov stood trial for the destruction of the documents, and was incarcerated for 16 months, but only served six. With Todorov refusing to speak about any details of the case, and the investigating officers being unprepared to probe any further due to his military and professional status, the investigation would need to seek a different route and pick apart any and all evidence that they discovered on the case. One file that was discovered held the name of a Bulgarian agent whose name had been assigned to Markov, with his code name being Piccadilly. Francesco Galino, the intended assassin, was given a backstory and a foolproof plan for travelling around Europe without causing any suspicious behaviour. He was issued instructions to pose as an art dealer, meaning he was afforded the cover of the profession, who indeed would need to travel from Denmark to England and back in just a few weeks. Galino was based in Copenhagen and was Italian, which wouldn't draw any huge suspicions from border officials either as no one would expect a link to Bulgaria from those two personal markers. With a few test trips under his belt, and his story not raising any concerns with border control, the next steps in the fatal plan were ready to take place. He made a short stay in England, which is when he carried out George's murder. With the assassin now being discovered, the Bulgarian investigating officers passed Galino's details onto Scotland Yard. The Danish police were notified of their suspicions, and Galino was brought in for question about the murder. The police were carrying out the investigation under secrecy, as according to sources, they had been allowing Galino to carry out espionage work during the Cold War, and didn't necessarily want to highlight this to the wider world. After the questioning in 1993, and his subsequent release due to insufficient evidence, Galino seemingly disappeared from that point onward. However, there were reported sightings of him in cities throughout Europe, but authorities seemingly lost interest in tracking him down. Nor perhaps did they feel his responsibility was any more than that of being a gun for hire. Markov's case is still open in the UK, as there isn't a statute of limitations on murder, which means that Scotland Yard is still able to convict for the murder should any new evidence be uncovered. In Bulgaria, the statute of limitations is 30 years, which means a conviction will never be made on behalf of Georgie in his homeland. With the move away from its communist past and with a pending application to join the EU, 
In 2006, the Bulgarian government was keen to bury its crimes and to move forward from the oppressive regime it once suffered at the hands of. With the statute running out in September 2008, the case has now been closed in Bulgaria for 10 years. So now, 40 years after the murder, who are the real victims of the case? And will there ever be convictions for Georgie's murder and Kostov's attempted murder? With the suffering endured not just being that of the victims, but the families that were terrorised by the impending fear and overhanging threat perhaps also being potentially neutralised by the Bulgarian government at any given moment. Can the surviving members of Georgie's family ever expect someone to pay for the crime of his political assassination? With the majority of people suspected in the case now being deceased and a vehement denial of the murder from Bulgaria, its resolution now looks like it will be forever buried under the weight of the Cold War. The fact that George's assassination happened on the day of Zhivkov's birthday does add weight to the argument that maybe this was some sort of murderous birthday present to himself. With poisoning still occurring even in the modern day, the attacks of recent years and even recent months still show that political murders are still a threat to those working under close government secrecy. The regimes of the communist era may have been dismantled, but the terror that they used to rule still lives on. With a new Cold War now simmering under a political landscape of topsoil turmoil, a return to a cat-and-mouse game of power still rumbles underneath the surface, even though the enemies and the allies are possibly closer than they've ever been before. However, forensics, CCTV and knowledge of such events nowadays will hopefully put an end to the perfect unsolved murders of the Cold War era, or perhaps more pointedly, an end to the chance of getting away with it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Macabre London. Let me know how you feel about this case in the comment box below, and make sure you join me on my social media so we can chat about it there. If you haven't already, then please make sure you check out my recent video on YouTube where I visited the Paris catacombs. It's something different from my usual London-based content, but I'm sure you'll still enjoy it. As usual, please give this episode a thumbs up if you liked it, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and remember to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps new people to find the show and to grow our Macabre family. Big hello to all of our new subscribers and our OGs too. I'm so pleased to have you here. If you'd like to support me to make more shows on a regular basis, then please support me on Patreon. Support tiers start from as little as just $1 or 80 pence, and go up in increments from there. You also get Macabre London-shaped rewards. It's worth chipping in so I can do more of this for you. The link for Patreon will be in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining me for another Macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you next time. the investigation of a serial killer because of prejudice inside the force. Catching images of what they believe are ghosts The victims there vulnerable women, many indigenous. The world is a lot. It really is. That's why we started our podcast, Six Sad World. I am Jasmine, and this is my co-host Mari. And we host a bi-weekly podcast on all things macabre. We cover anything from serial killers to cults to alien conspiracies to ghost stories and so much more. We are childhood friends, and we're both passionate about social justice. We'll discuss how these things intersect with racism, sexism, ableism, and queermizia. We both have unique perspectives coming from marginalized identities. Me as a black cis woman, and Mari as a disabled trans person. 
We offer the kinds of conversations we felt were missing in true crime and horror. And we're hoping you'll join the conversation, too. So check out Six Sad World. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you can find your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.